Pretty much all of the pre-Pauline church history is behind us. And after this week, we will be focusing exclusively in this book on Paul and his missionary journeys. But not only is this the chronological halfway point of the book of Acts, this is also the theological center of the book of Acts. Acts 15 contains the story of the first Jerusalem council, perhaps the most important event in this book apart from Pentecost in chapter 2. You'll remember that for the first years of the church, it was exclusively Jewish. Then we saw the slow expansion to the Hellenistic Jews, and then the Samaritans, and then the Jewish converts and proselytes, and then finally the inclusion of the Gentiles. And the Jews in Jerusalem begrudgingly accepted the work of the Spirit through Peter at Cornelius' house, right? But it was the church at Antioch that really took it to heart. It was from Antioch that Paul and Barnabas were sent on the first missionary journey, which saw the majority of its evangelistic success among the Gentiles. This was a watershed moment in biblical history. Nations other than Israel were being accepted as the people of God. And as we will see today, this transition was not going to take place without conflict. Like the brother of the prodigal son, we're going to see the Christian Pharisees are going to pout and resist the inclusion of the Gentiles apart from circumcision and the law of Moses. But as we are here today, and we are not strict adherents to the ceremonial law of Moses, we know how this story ends. We are not bound by the law, but we are saved by grace through faith. Acts 15 is a pivot point in the canon of Scripture, and it should be a source of joy for all of us who read it, especially those of us who are Gentiles. So let us begin by reading Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So Paul and Barnabas come home from their missionary journey and return to Antioch in Syria. We do not know how long they were gone, and we do not know how long it was between their return and the conflict in this chapter. Whatever the case, teachers have come from Jerusalem and are teaching that the law of Moses is required for salvation. This is most likely around the time when Paul wrote the book of Galatians, when he was having, as it says, no small dissension and debate with the Judaizers. So some would place that book after the council, but I think it makes the most sense to place it here. For one thing, the book of Galatians was written to the churches that Paul had planted on his first missionary journey. It addresses this exact issue, that of circumcision and salvation, and 
The fiery tone of the letter to the Galatians speaks, I think, both to the intensity of an unresolved situation and the youth of Paul the Apostle. Paul, as a young man, was a rather fiery dude, and as he got older, his letters kind of mellowed out. That would make Galatians the first canonical epistle to be written. So you might want to write Galatians in the margin of these first five verses because that's probably when it was written. And it is in the book of Galatians that Paul sheds light on the conflict in Antioch. Whether or not this is the exact same situation we're discussing today, it makes the same point. Some people uh, want to put this at a different time, but I think that in Galatians chapter 2, Paul is describing what happened here in the beginning of Acts chapter 15. So I'm going to read Galatians 2, verses 11 through 14. Paul writes, But when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So that's Galatians chapter 2, shedding light, further light on the situation that we're reading about here in Acts 15. In the church at Antioch, the Jews and Gentiles used to eat together as brothers and sisters with no cultural divide, which was a big deal in that time, you know. But when some of these men came from Jerusalem, all of that stopped. Paul wrote that they came from James, but we're going to see later in this chapter that James did not send them to teach what they were teaching. Probably they were Pharisees, and we know a little something about Pharisees from the Gospels. <laughs> they had solid doctrine in many ways, and their devotion to the Lord was admirable, but they were all tied up in the traditions of the Jews. And so they began to teach that you cannot be saved unless you keep the law and be circumcised. And Paul tells us in Galatians that even Peter and Barnabas were intimidated by these people and began to keep a safe distance from the Gentile Christians. And at some point, Paul had enough. And he confronted Peter to his face. He called him out, I'm certain, in front of these Pharisees. And he blew the lid off the whole thing. Peter was no doubt chastened. He's going to get it together in this chapter. And Luke tells us here that Barnabas joined with Paul in this confrontation. But can you imagine the reaction of these teachers when they found out that Peter and the other Jews had been eating with the Gentiles, the uncircumcised Gentiles? Do you mean to tell me that in this church, the disciples of the Messiah eat and drink with Gentile dogs? And then Paul would respond, they're not Gentile dogs. They're your brothers in Christ. And off they go. And this is the big question that must be answered. This is the question that Acts 15 answers once and for all. Do we have to keep the law of Moses to be saved? That's the big question. Do we have to keep the law of Moses to be saved? All the events that will transpire in this chapter serve to answer that question. These teachers from Jerusalem were insisting that Gentiles must be circumcised and keep the law in order to be saved. They had to become Jews in order to become Christians. It was inconceivable to them that God would fulfill the promises and prophecies of the law apart from the commandments and ceremonies of the law. And you can see their point. Let's be fair. 
God had chosen Israel as his special people to be a light to the Gentiles. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant. It set them apart from the idolatrous nations of the world. And to them, it sounded like capitulation to allow Gentiles to ignore all of that. But we know what Paul would say to this because we have a whole New Testament written largely by him that explains his position. Romans 3.28, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Paul had been a scrupulous keeper of the law. He was a Pharisee, but it had gotten him nowhere. In fact, the works of the law had become a hindrance for him because he thought obedience to the law of Moses would make him righteous enough to be saved, or rather to not even need salvation. But it was the grace of God that saved him before he had done any works to deserve it. He had experienced it for himself, and he was not about to let anybody put that burden on anybody else, no matter who they were. Well, the conflict grew so fierce that the elders in Antioch decided to send them all down to Jerusalem to have the question resolved. And again, that big question is, do we have to keep the law of Moses to be saved? Paul and Barnabas go down with them. And Luke gives that interesting note here that in every church there was joy when they heard what God was doing among the Gentiles. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. He's letting us know, kind of subtly, where God stood on this issue. It would have been about a month's journey to get to Jerusalem, going through Phoenicia, which is Tyre and Sidon and that whole area, and then Samaria as they got further south. And they get to Jerusalem where the first church council ever is convened. There is a popular understanding of the early church that there were competing orthodoxies, competing theologies that fought together. And that what we believe today is not what the church has always believed. That's just the group that happened to win out in all of the fights. But that is not what we see in this chapter, is it? In fact, those who believe that story of competing theologies, they teach that this story never happened. Luke made it up. They have no evidence for that other than their own assumptions. Because if they admit that this story really happened, then it shows the church working together to come to a conclusion and not fighting like they taught that they did. So they have to assume that this had to have been made up. But I would rather stand on the simplicity of what the text says rather than saying the text must be wrong because of my brilliant ideas and theories. You may run into some of that. You'll hear that along the way. But it's really, it's all nonsense and there's no reason to give it any of your time. What we see here is that the church was not at war with itself. They were having a family dispute. And so they came together as a family to resolve the big question. Do we have to keep the law of Moses to be saved? And as we will see, they're going to come to a conclusion. It's not just going to be an ongoing fight. They're going to come to a conclusion. And it's a conclusion that we still hold to be true today. This was the biggest moment in the church so far. And this is a pivotal moment in the history of the world, you guys. Not just in the Bible, but the history of the world. So let's read on to verses 6 through 12. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? 
but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So the delegation from Antioch arrived in Jerusalem. They presented their case, it says, to the apostles and the elders. Paul and Barnabas shared the testimony of what God had done among the Gentiles on their journey. And the Pharisees stood for a rebuttal, claiming that these Gentiles needed to become Jews in order to become Christians. And it says there was much debate before they reached a conclusion. So Luke is condensing the story, and I, I think that's for the best, because we don't need to be airing all of our dirty laundry as a church. And if we all came together to a conclusion, that's the most important thing. So I think there's something to be learned about that too, but I'm not going to discuss that for very long today. In verse 7, it is Simon Peter who stands to have his say. And as we see in verse 12, his words carry the day among the congregation. They're all talking and debating, and then Peter stands up and that kind of settles it. It's like, okay, I think this conversation is just about over. He reminds them of the story of Cornelius, when God first sent him to preach the gospel to a Gentile. We read this story in Acts chapter 10, when God, you remember, gave him the vision of the sheet of animals in Joppa, and he told him in Acts 10.15, What God has made clean, do not call common. And then he was sent by the Spirit to the Roman centurion's house. He preached the gospel there, and before he could even finish his presentation, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, and Peter was given no choice but to baptize them into the church. And you'll remember that Peter was confronted upon his return to Jerusalem for eating with Gentiles. But when he told them what happened, they understood that it was the work of the Lord. And in Acts 11, verse 18, it says, They glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Well, if that is the case, then why are we here? Because although these Christians had accepted that God was going to save the Gentiles, they assumed that part of that process would be converting them to Judaism first. The events that we're reading today likely took place in the late 40s AD, which means it's been about 20 years since the beginning of the book of Acts, and about 10 years since the events in Cornelius' house. That's why Peter refers to the early days. It's been about a decade since he went to Cornelius. This whole issue has not been a problem for that long, because until now, no one has taken seriously the mandate to evangelize the Gentiles. Now, with churches spreading all over the world, the Pharisees are going to show their prejudice here. But Peter reminds them of a very important point. God poured out His Holy Spirit upon the Gentiles before they were circumcised. In fact, before they were baptized. So if we're trying to answer the big question about keeping the law in order to be saved, Peter offers us our first point of evidence. We are saved apart from the law. We are saved apart from the law. The Pharisees had said in Antioch that apart from the law and circumcision, you could not be saved. But God had saved these Gentiles without circumcision and without keeping the law. Paul and Barnabas corroborated Peter's words with their own testimonies. They had performed signs and wonders on their journeys and seen countless Gentiles receive the salvation of the Lord. They had seen the Holy Spirit poured out on uncircumcised Gentiles. So who were they to try to add what God had required? Paul wrote to these churches in Galatians 3, 2-3, Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit... Are you now being perfected by the flesh? 
Apparently, some Judaizers were trying to put the same pressure on those Galatian churches. And Paul did as Peter did. He appealed to their salvation experience, the sovereign work of God as evidence against further requirements to be saved. It's kind of like saying, is circumcision going to do more for you than the Holy Spirit of God did when he came upon you? God took the initiative in saving these Gentiles. He did not wait for regulations or ceremonies, but he reached out with his grace to save them. That is the simple answer to the big question. We are saved apart from the law because it is God who does the saving. And he did not require either the Gentiles in Cornelius' house or the Gentiles in Galatia to be circumcised before pouring out his Holy Spirit. I love the words of Peter in verses 8 and 9. You should highlight those and memorize them. It's a beautiful description of salvation. He says that God knew their hearts and bore witness to them. That is, he put his stamp of approval on their hearts by his Holy Spirit. He made no distinction between them. Like God said to Samuel so long ago, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. All it took to cleanse their hearts of sin, as we see in verse 9, was faith. And the Lord gave evidence of that by pouring out his Holy Spirit upon them. According to Simon Peter and your Bible, salvation is not an external matter but a matter of the heart. This point is so important and might seem so obvious to us now that we would miss it if we're not careful. Do you understand how revolutionary this is of what Peter is saying? That salvation is not a matter of the body, but a matter of the heart. God saw the hearts of the Gentiles and he cleansed the hearts of the Gentiles, not their bodies. Look at these issues that the Pharisees were raising. Circumcision was the big one. The removal of a piece of flesh from a person's body. And they wanted these people to be restricted in what they could eat and what they could touch and when they could work. None of these things have anything to do with the heart of a man. These are not moral issues. These are ceremonial, traditional, cultural issues. But they had elevated them to the status of moral obligation. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 11, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. God did not wait for anybody to keep any part of the law before extending his salvation. We are saved apart from the law of Moses. The Pharisees in Antioch were absolutely wrong. The law was never put in place as a means of salvation. The purpose of the law was to make men aware of their sin. Paul said in Romans 7.13 that the law was in place in order that sin might be shown to be sin. By holding up a righteous standard, God was able to show the Jews that they could not save themselves through their works. As Peter says in verse 10, this was a burden that they could not bear. It was impossible to keep the law, and that was the point. The law was meant to demonstrate the need for a Savior. Salvation could only ever come through the grace of God. And the Old Testament saints knew this. David wrote in Psalm 51, 17, You will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. It is the heart that matters, not sacrifices, not dietary laws and festivals, and certainly not circumcision. 
Moses himself said, circumcise the foreskin of your heart in Deuteronomy 10, 16. It was faith that cleansed the hearts of the Gentiles and the grace of God that saved them. But these Pharisees wanted to add extra rules, just like the extra rules that had grown up around the law of Moses. And Peter called this putting God to the test. It is unfortunate that there are still so many people who want to put God's sovereign work of salvation to the test by adding extra steps in order to be saved. I'm not talking about morality here. I'm not talking about right and wrong and sin. Nothing in this council had anything to do with right and wrong. I'm talking about outward markers that have nothing to do with the heart. There is nothing inherently moral about worshiping on Saturday or abstaining from pork or being circumcised. Those are all external. But there are always folks who want to add external requirements in order to be saved. You must worship on Saturday. You must speak in tongues. You must dress a certain way. You must not eat this. You must not drink that. You must not watch that. You must read the Bible in this translation. Look, none of those things are evil, but they are all external. They have nothing to do with the heart. Paul wrote in Colossians 2.23, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. To say that anything other than grace through faith is necessary in order to be saved is called legalism, and it was rejected here in Acts chapter 15. So Peter gives us our first point in answering the big question. Must we keep the law to be saved? Fact number one, we are saved apart from the law. That is a categorical answer. It is the known quantity in this discussion. God had saved the Gentiles apart from the law. Therefore, the council had no authority to raise the bar that God had set. Well, let's keep reading down to verse 21 now. Verse 13, after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. Then the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. When Peter finished speaking and Barnabas and Paul got a chance to have their say, none of the Pharisees had anything left to say. It was clear God had saved the Gentiles apart from the law. They were wrong. But although the theological principle had been understood, it was up to James to make the appropriate application and to bring the conflict to a resolution. This, of course, is James, the brother of Jesus. During his life in ministry, James had not believed that his brother was the Messiah. In fact, James came with the rest of his family in Luke 8 to bring Jesus home because they thought he was out of his mind. 
He's going around telling people he's a prophet. What in the world is wrong with Jesus? We better bring him home. He's not well. <laughs> and in John 7, it seems that Jesus and his brothers had a falling out with each other as they mocked him for being a pretentious big shot. Read that chapter. It's kind of, kind of amazing <laughs> what they said to him. But after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to James. And from that moment on, we find James in the church. He was there in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. Well, if you might not believe your brother is the Messiah, but if your brother rises from the dead and appears to you, that might change your mind a little bit. Paul would call him a pillar in the church. And we see him here taking a leadership role in Jerusalem. While the apostles oversaw the whole church and they traveled widely, James was what you might call the pastor of the congregation in Jerusalem. Tradition tells us that even the Jews respected him and they grieved at his death. He would go on to write the book of James, which you have in your Bible today. And I might add, going back to that previous point, that many people want to pit the theology of James and Paul against each other. Paul is all about faith. James is all about works. No. You can see here, they are in absolute agreement on issues of salvation. And it is not very difficult to harmonize the writings of James and Paul. So you don't need to be worried about that. Peter had reminded all of them what God had done. He had appealed to their spirit-filled experience. This is good. Nothing wrong with that. But James is going to ground what they had experienced in the scriptures, and that's even better. Our experiences must never be allowed to take us beyond the boundaries of the Bible. The Holy Spirit has already spoken in his infallible word. So don't think you can just run off the, the boundaries the Bible has set because the Spirit led you. No, he didn't. The Spirit's not going to contradict himself. And James refers to Simeon. Obviously, this is Simon Peter. Simeon was the Hebrew form of the name. Simon was the Aramaic form of that name. It's obviously talking about Peter. He refers to his story, and he says that the words of the prophets agree with his testimony. That word for agree, I love this, is symphoneo. That's where we get our word symphony. It means to sound together, like an orchestra, where all the instruments make different sounds together in order to make something beautiful. I used to play trombone in band back in middle school, and I'd be at home practicing my part at home, and there was never anything special to hear. Because I'm playing all the bass notes, I'm playing in the fills, and it would be boring. And then I'd go to the band, and I'd be playing my boring part, but when it all came together, it sounded really, really good. I liked it when we did jazz stuff because I got a chance to mess around a little bit. But anyway, the point is, a spiritual experience is only valid if it is in harmony with what the Bible has already said. And James quotes here from Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 12, when the prophet foretells the sifting of Israel, when the remnant of the righteous will be separated from the rest of the wicked. But he goes on in that passage to say that it's not just going to be the sifting of the Jews, but that even the Gentiles, that's the word nations in Hebrew, they're going to be sifted too. And there will be a remnant of Gentiles who come to worship the Lord. And Amos ties all of that to the restoration of the throne of David, saying when David's throne is restored, not only is God going to sort out the Jews, he's going to sort out the Gentiles too. And of course, we know that Jesus Christ is the son of David, the Messiah, who will reign forever and ever. And James here recognized that since the son of David had been exalted, 
it was time, according to the book of Amos, for the Jews to be sifted and for the Gentile remnant to be drawn out. He saw that what was happening in the church then was the fulfillment of what had been prophesied before. The experience of Peter was in harmony with the prophecy of Amos. Therefore, James recognized it as legitimate and definitive. This is why he says in verse 19 what would become the verdict of this council. We should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. That is, we should not require them to be circumcised and to keep the law. We will discuss the four recommendations he makes in verse 20 in a moment. This is the second point that answers our big question. Do we have to keep the law to be saved? We already know that we are saved apart from the law. Therefore, fact two, we do not have to keep the law. This is an important step because it keeps the legalists from saying, yes, yes, we're not saved by the law, but we still have to keep it. As Paul says twice in Romans 6, you are not under law, but under grace. This was the prophesied plan of God. It was always God's plan to save the Gentiles. And it was never God's plan to use the law as the means of salvation. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 2 says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations, you can read that as all the Gentiles, shall flow to it. Psalm 86 verse 9, all the nations, goyim, Gentiles, you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. God had chosen Israel, according to Exodus 19, to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They were to be his means of reaching the whole world. That's why the covenant was established. That's another reason why he gave them the law. The law, in addition to pointing them to the Messiah, existed to separate them and distinguish them from the other nations. They would dress differently, eat differently, and work differently from everyone else to mark them as God's people. But they allowed these things to become more important to them than the purpose for which they were implemented. They grew to despise the Gentiles, and they only desired to insulate themselves from the other nations. That's why when Jesus came, he kept the law, but he did not allow Moses to rule his life. The Sabbath was made for man, he said, not man for the Sabbath. He taught us to prioritize the heart and its motivations because that's what really matters. God never planned to make any requirement of the law, even one as important as circumcision, necessary for salvation. Paul makes the point in Galatians 3 that even Abraham was counted righteous by God before he was circumcised. And that was hundreds of years before the law. So circumcision predates the law, and salvation predates circumcision. Either we must conclude that Abraham was not saved because he did not keep the law, or we must conclude that salvation does not come through the law. We are saved by faith, and we do not have to keep the law. That's the second big fact. James recognized that God had already saved these Gentiles, as had been prophesied, so who was he or anyone else to add to their burden? It was not just the testimonies and opinions of Peter and Paul now. It was the inspired word of God, the prophets of the Old Testament. The Lord had always planned to redeem the Gentiles apart from the law. It was right there in their Bibles. In Isaiah 45, 22, God himself makes an evangelistic appeal to the Gentiles. 
Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. He did not say, come and be circumcised or come keep the Sabbath. He said, turn to me. Repent and believe in me as the one true God, he said. But the Pharisees were too wrapped up in their own traditions and their own cultures to see what was right there in the Bible. Jesus had said in John 10, 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. The other sheep were coming in. And what difference did it make if these sheep had not been shorn yet or bathed and fed properly? It was the shepherd's prerogative to bring them in by his own grace, just as they were. And he had done exactly that. We do not have to keep the law because the law was our guardian until Christ came, Paul said in Galatians. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. We do not have to keep the law to be saved because we are saved apart from the law. So we do not have to keep the law. I love that. It's a good thing, isn't it? Aren't you glad you don't have to keep the law? Now, I did not address yet the other suggestion that James made and the four recommendations that the council would send out because I wanted to establish the foundational principle first. The council agrees that the Gentiles do not have to keep the law to be saved. But let's get into what they did say now and read verses 22 through 29. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders, with the whole church, this is unanimous agreement, to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, circle that name, it's the first time we see him, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So the council at Jerusalem comes to a unanimous agreement that salvation is by faith, and that Gentiles do not have to become Jews in order to be saved. That is a momentous decision that we enjoy to this day. They sent Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch, along with two other representatives from Jerusalem, to carry the news. They also carried that letter from the elders and apostles with four abstentions for them to follow. The first thing was that they abstained from food that had been sacrificed to idols, or things polluted by idols, as it says in verse 20. Roman temples were in every city. Sacrifices were made every day. And it was very common for the brisket and the pulled pork from the sacrifice to be sold in the marketplace. Many public functions were held in the temples with a feast in honor of the gods. And the elders asked them to abstain from these things. Second, they were to abstain from blood. This is very closely to the third abstention from what has been strangled, since they were both addressing the same issue. According to Leviticus 17.11, the life of the flesh is in the blood. 
And Jews were not to eat anything that had not been properly drained of its blood. Obviously, strangled animals could not have the blood drained, so they were off limits. And the fourth item is for them to abstain from sexual immorality, porneia in Greek. This is the word from which we derive the word pornography. This is a catch-all word for any kind of sexual deviance. So they asked them to abstain from one, food sacrificed to idols, two, from blood, three, from things strangled, and four, from sexual immorality. They said if they did that, they would do well. Now, let me explain to you the wrong way to look at this list. This list was not intended to be a new law for the church. These are not requirements that are necessary for salvation. We just established in the previous verses that salvation is by grace through faith, not of works. This list is never repeated again in the New Testament because it is not a definitive list for all time. The point of this list was to promote fellowship and love between the Jews and the Gentiles in the church in Antioch. Let me back up that statement a little bit. It is abundantly clear from the words of Peter and James that salvation is through faith. That was the major conclusion of the council. So whatever this list is, it's not laying down new requirements for salvation. It also is not a list of new moral requirements for the church. None of the issues that were discussed at this council, for example, circumcision, were moral issues. The question was whether or not Gentiles needed to keep the law of Moses. The answer to that was also a resounding no. We are not under the law, we are under grace. Besides, both the Old and New Testaments make it clear you cannot chop up the law of Moses into pieces and decide which pieces you're going to keep. It's all or nothing. So then it is not a list of steps to salvation. It's not a revised version of the moral law of Moses. So what is it? Look at why James suggests sending out this list in verse 21. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. James wants to send out this list to blunt the edges of the Gentiles' behavior so that they do not offend the Jews all around the world. This is an attempt to break down barriers, not a decision about which barriers to keep up. If these Gentile Christians were to talk about how they worship the God of the Jews, yet eat food with the blood in it, and go to pagan temples to buy their brisket, they would bring unnecessary suspicion upon the church. We know this would happen because it had already happened. Look at the Pharisees who went to Antioch. Not only that, but the conscience of these Jewish Christians was so sensitive that they were having a hard time embracing their new Gentile brothers. So James has them write, fellas, you're not saved by the law, but we're going to lay down some ground rules in order to make it easier for these Pharisees to eat supper with you Romans. When you view the list this way, you avoid confusing questions about which ones am I supposed to keep? If this is a list of morality, then why in the world is eating a raw steak on the same level as sexual immorality? <laughs> but if you understand that this is about promoting fellowship, then it makes total sense. The fact that they told them to abstain from sexual immorality does not imply that they were not doing so already. It just seems like an obvious thing to add to such a list. I've heard a lot of funky interpretations of this passage. I've had a lot of strange cult members try to explain that they were teaching that you did have to keep the law, which is the exact opposite of the conclusion they came to here. There's the, the Hebrew Roots movement, which is 
basically a heretical group in a lot of ways as far as I'm concerned who want to figure out which parts of the law do we want to bring back. They, they do not properly understand this passage. I think this is the cleanest and most consistent way to understand what was said at the council and the rest of the New Testament because they're not going to bring these lists up again. As those under the new covenant, our behavior is no longer dictated by rules and regulations, but by the Holy Spirit of God within us. This was a step beyond the old covenant. The old covenant began by laying down law. The new covenant says, we're not going to follow a standard. I'm going to change your heart so that you can follow me directly, the Lord said. The Holy Spirit came upon us at salvation before we had done anything to deserve it. He is the only one who has any right to tell us what we ought and ought not to do. Galatians 5.18 says, If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. This, of course, does not discard the Bible, because the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible. But it is in the Bible that we have Acts 15, where we are told that externalities are irrelevant to the status of your heart. Again, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul said, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. However, as we see in this story, while we are not saved by externalities, and while we are free in regard to external matters, it is sometimes necessary to regulate our externalities out of love for our brothers in Christ. The Gentiles were not morally obligated to abstain from things strangled, but they were willing to abstain from things strangled out of respect for their Jewish brothers. We have answered the big question about whether we have to keep the law to be saved. We don't have to keep the law at all. However, we can draw one more conclusion from this passage, which is we should respect one another's convictions. Paul goes into this subject in great detail in both 1 Corinthians and Romans. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 23 through 24, lays down the principle. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. He's addressing in that passage the issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols. He says that while eating the meat itself is not wrong, it's better to abstain from it and avoid offending the conscience of another brother. I wish I could read the entirety of Romans 14 because it lays this out so perfectly. He applies this to the dietary laws and says, Let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine, or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. That's Romans 14, verses 19 through 21. You may know that eating bacon is not a sin. But if you have a Jewish Christian brother whose conscience has been trained to abstain from eating pork, you ought to lay off the bacon to make it easier for that brother. It is all about love and respect for one another. We may have the Christian liberty, as Paul says, to eat meat or drink wine or anything else, but if there's another Christian who has a problem with it, we ought to avoid the issue by abstaining, or, as Paul says in that passage, keep it between yourself and God. That's Romans 14, 22. If the matter in question has nothing to do with Jesus, nothing to do with the heart, 
it should not be a big deal for you to lay it aside out of love. Now, this attitude is not only rare today, it's downright countercultural today. We don't know how to keep anything to ourselves. We can't just watch a movie. We have to post on Facebook that we watched the movie. We feel like keeping something private is somehow an intrusion on our independence, and we get all huffy about it. But as a Christian, hear me now, your self-expression is not a priority. What is a priority is the harmony of the people of God. And if you are so dead set on posting a picture of your glass of wine on Instagram that you can't even consider the conscience of your brothers and sisters, you've become a slave to your own image. Romans 15.1 says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So you're saying, I can't express myself fully? No. What do you need to express yourself fully? Proverbs says, only a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man holds it back. We are to do what is best for the fellowship and harmony of the church, not for what makes us feel special. Now, there is a coordinate principle that those of us who have strong convictions about externalities should not weaponize them in order to control how people live. We see the Pharisees, the Pharisees of all people, demonstrating that respect here for the Gentiles. They are willing to withdraw their objections about circumcision out of obedience to the word of God. And so the Gentiles are politely asked to defer some of their own liberties out of respect for their Jewish brothers. That is how it ought to be in the church of Jesus Christ. Nobody in this story, when we come to the end, nobody is operating out of selfishness. They're all operating out of what is best for him or for her or for them. If everybody does that, we'll do just fine. Bringing it to a close, let's read down through verse 35. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So the church in Antioch receives the news with rejoicing. They are more than willing to change their own personal habits to promote harmony between the Jews and the Gentiles. There is a textual note here. Most newer translations do not include verse 34, which says, but it seemed good to Silas to remain there. That sentence is not found in the oldest and best manuscript copies we have. Check out our pamphlet, Can I Trust My Bible, which is on the resource page of the website. If you'd like an explanation of how that process works, textual criticism, I'd also be happy to answer any questions that you might have. Feel free to send us an email. But you'll see that the removal of this verse does not do any violence to this passage. Silas is back with Paul in verse 40, so it really shouldn't trip us up whether or not the text said he stayed there or if he went back to Jerusalem. This is, by the way, the first time we see Silas, or Silvanus, as he is called in some places. He's going to travel with Paul on his next missionary journey instead of Barnabas. I'll explain why next week. Silas would not only travel with Paul, but he would help him write the epistles to the Thessalonians, as well as Peter's first epistle. 
We see from this passage he was a godly man, respected enough by the church in Jerusalem to choose him as a representative, and he had the gift of prophecy, which he exercises in verse 32. Judas Barsabbas, Barsabbas means son of the Sabbath, seems to be the same sort of man, but this is the only mention of him we have in the New Testament. And by the way, believe it or not, we have seen the last of Simon Peter in the book of Acts. From now on, we will focus on Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. And now the church has formally accepted these Gentiles into their ranks. The door is wide open. Anybody can come in. This does not mean that the conflict is over, though. Paul will have to deal with Judaizers in just about every city he visits, because the church in Jerusalem and Antioch got this, but the churches around the world and the other synagogues are still going to have to learn this lesson. The books of Galatians, Romans, Ephesians, Colossians, and Hebrews all deal extensively with this problem, which only makes sense knowing what a monumental transition this was in salvation history. You, you can even look at it this way. The New Testament, its function in the canon, among other things, is to explain why we no longer have to keep the law today. If you'd like to read more, I'd point you first to Galatians, because it was written in the midst of this conflict, and then to Romans, especially chapters 9 through 11. But for now, just see the joy of the church. The fruit of the Spirit is joy, we said. So we know that God was in this decision, and that's how you know. Because when they deliver the decision, there was joy in the church. And isn't that a joyful thing? Salvation is not about ethnicity or some silly ritual. It's about the heart. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. God did, in this chapter, what he had always promised to do, he reached beyond the nation of Israel to the idolatrous, undeserving nations of the world, and he showed them his mercy and his love. Do we have to keep the law of Moses to be saved? As we know from spirit-filled experience, we are saved apart from the law. Therefore, we do not have to keep the law, but we still ought to love one another.